Chris, the question I would ask to you is like, what are your priorities over the next six to 12 months? What are your top three priorities over the next six to 12 months? And you're not going to say buying Juniper Square. You're going to tell me something else that's a little bit kind of more esoteric. And I need to figure out, well, is there an opportunity for me to align the product that I have with one of your business priorities? And that's something that, you know, the more kind of eyes you can get on that, the easier it is for reps to get their head around not missing out on an opportunity that might be sitting in front of them but that might not be obvious. Hello, everyone. Just kidding. This is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey telling the stories of leaders, founders, CEOs, and people making an impact through business, investing, and entrepreneurship. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at the Fort Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you again. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. I am pumped today to have a good friend of mine, Brandon Sedloff, who is with Juniper Square on with me today. Brandon and I met, we're just coming up on our three-year anniversary of working together. Fort Capital has been using Juniper Square's platform. Um, I'm really excited to have him on today for a lot of reasons. One, Juniper Square has been a game changer for Fort, and I want to talk about Juniper and what's going on there. But secondly, Brandon is probably the best salesperson that I've ever met. And he approaches it in a way that doesn't make it feel like sales, but makes it feel like passion. So we're going to dive deep there. So thank you for joining me on the show today, Brandon. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm excited to be here. Cool. Um, we'll just jump right in. Um, what is what is Juniper Square and what like how did you get to Juniper Square? Yeah. So um, for those of you listening that aren't familiar, um, Juniper Square is a software company. Uh, we operate a model called software as a service. Uh, and what we do is we help investment managers, specifically focused in the real estate space today, uh, raise capital, manage their investor relationships, and communicate with their investors. Um, so if you think about kind of the sum total of what that means is we're effectively the operating system of record for our clients as it relates to their investors' commitments with them as a GP. And a G and you guys um, started how long ago? Three or four years ago? Yeah. So um, yeah. So the business was founded in 2014. Um, you know, the the kind of idea was was pretty simple. It's um, you know we were sitting in a room as a as kind of a, a a leadership team, or the leadership team was sitting in a room, I should say. And one of the things that they observed was that you know they have investments in many different um in many different kind of asset classes right many different types of capital strategies and investment vehicles whether it's buyout private equity or hedge funds or real estate and one of the observations that was very striking was that the reporting that they were getting from real estate investment managers was significantly different and ie lacking compared to the reporting they were getting from other managers where they had investments and so um, once they started to kind of unpack and drill down into why this might be one of the things that they realized is that you know real estate 
is an industry which has been predominantly built on relationships. And many folks um, who have been in the game for a long time have had a lot of success. And um, with that success comes a lot of growth. And with that growth comes, you know, moving quickly and maybe forgetting to do kind of the planning that's required to future-proof your business. And so when we started to look under the hood of these real estate investment managers that were telling us about their problems, one of the things that we identified was that kind of the operating system of record for managing a lot of the most important information was still spreadsheets. Yep. And the problem with spreadsheets, and you know, you probably know that, I know you know this, Chris, because you've uh, successfully moved out of spreadsheets. Yeah. But um, the problem with spreadsheets is, you know, they were, they're a great tool. They're a great tool for ad hoc analysis, right? You need to run, you need to do a calculation. Um, you should use a spreadsheet. Uh, they're not, ever, they have never been designed to be a system of record, right? right. And, and when we, when we started looking at kind of why real estate reporting was the way that it was, uh, what we found is that spreadsheets were being used as a system of record. Um, and the problem that, that that created was it makes it really hard to take this information, get get the information out of spreadsheets and get it into the hands of the people who need it the most, which are your investors. And so that was kind of the core kind of problem that we observed um, as, a, as, as a company and the thing that we started to solve for. And I think the what really put fuel on the fire for us is, yes, it's great to tell investment managers that they shouldn't use spreadsheets as their system of record, but it's way more impactful when investors tell their managers that they shouldn't use spreadsheets yeah. as a system of record. And the way that we saw that manifest itself across the real estate industry is we saw this really big shift where, you know, today, if you're an investor, whether you're a high net worth investor or you're an institutional investor, you have a lot more options if you want to invest in real estate as an asset class um, compared to maybe five or even 10 years ago. And with those options, uh, with the kind of proliferation of options, one of the things that, that happened was that as an investor, you start to have a lot more control. And with control, you can make more demands. And with those demands, you can place those on your managers. And while that might make life difficult for some managers who aren't ready to adapt, one of the key demands is, hey, we need more transparency. Like, I need to know if I'm going to give you $100, how is that $100 doing? Where is it invested? And what is the return on my investment? And that was the thing that many of our customers, our earliest customers and our customers today, were really struggling to figure out. And so that was the reason we started Juniper Square. And I think it is what, yeah, it's it's one of the reasons why we've experienced such rapid growth is because it's our customer's customer who are really driving things forward for us. And y'all are working with companies, small, large, and some of the biggest companies in the world. Is there like a difference in the needs of investors depending on where you are in that stack? Or do all investors kind of want and need the same thing? Yeah. So um, to give some perspective, we've got nearly 500 uh, real estate investment managers on our platform today. These are these are real estate GPs, um, similar similar to to Four Capital, and they they run a really wide spectrum, right? So on one end of the spectrum, we've got folks who are raising capital from high net worth investors on a deal by deal basis. Yep. Really successful, great returns. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum, we've got folks who are raising funds from institutional investors on a discretionary basis. Yep. And in between, we've got groups that are basically acting as local operating companies who are raising capital on a deal-by-deal -deal basis and are working with groups like Fort and other um, institutional fund managers. So we're really unique in the sense that we have the ability to span the entire spectrum. And um, to answer your question directly, the the, the kind of uh, atomic unit of, of, of reporting 
across all of these different companies is the same. You know, the responsibility, uh, the manager still has the responsibility to, um, to, 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 to act as a fiduciary, to track um, the dollars that are coming in, the dollars that are going out to investors, and the performance of the investment. Right. Um, but the thing that's changing is that um, the level, the the expectations of the investors are very different. So at the high net worth side of things, um, you know, the the expectation of the investor is to have a Charles Schwab like reporting experience. Because if you're, you know, a high net worth or an ultra high net worth investor, you probably have a wide range of investments across public and private um, markets. And so you're very familiar with this, this modality of being able to log in to some sort of an application, have some visibility to see how your investments are performing, whether they have daily marks or quarterly marks or annual marks, how much you've made, how much you've lost, what you put in, what you've taken out, et cetera, et cetera. And so this same type of expectation is something that we see, um, uh, especially from the high net worth and, and ultra high net worth family office community. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum with the institutional community, you may have teams, you may have dozens of people who do nothing but handle the reporting that they get from managers. And so what those folks want is they're really focused on data and standardizations and the ability to use that data to um, think about you know, portfolio allocations and to underwrite and understand risk and to really forecast kind of how they're going to think about investing going forward. But the the, the reality is that the same information is being shared, whether you're uh, operating with high net worth investors or you're operating with institutional investors. Yep. I think what drew us, I mean, it's an incredible answer. And one of the things that I always struggled with really early on, and I had a mentor that told me, you know, your, your, your tenants are your customers, but your real customers are your investors. And the real estate business, the lifeblood is the ability to have capital. It's an expensive game and being able to treat them, um, you know, like royalty. And when you have a lack of resources or you're smaller, it's very tough to be able to report in a way that, again, those high net worth individuals are expect or used to seeing. And so for years we had, we had either tried, um, building stuff from scratch. It never worked. We would try hiring these companies that, that wanted to charge us a quarter million dollars a year for investor reporting, and it just never worked. And when we found Juniper, um, it aligned with our mission to provide our investors not only great returns, but a great experience in achieving those returns, which goes back to transparency, communication, their ability to know where their money is. I mean, when you deal with somebody's money, it is a different relationship than when you're not dealing with somebody's money. And so for us, it was, I mean, it was a very obvious answer of we can provide a very elegant experience that is dependable, it's consistent, and it gave us much less friction in providing a great investment experience. And it was affordable, which was huge. Um, before Juniper, that really didn't exist. Why was it so expensive and archaic before? Did nobody really think about it as a product that maybe the smaller sponsors or GPs could use prior to Juniper really wrapping its arms around this problem? Yeah, no, you raise a really great um, point. And, and candidly, and, and you didn't touch on this, but I would imagine um, that it provides you also with a competitive advantage because oh, yeah. if you're if you're pitching a deal to an investor and that investor has five different opportunities that they're evaluating, you know, do you want to evaluate the one where your money goes into a black box and maybe 
you get a distribution, maybe you don't, or do you want to evaluate the one who's like, hey, we're really confident in our ability to outperform the market and produce alpha for you. And by the way, we're going to tell you all about it along the way. So you yeah. have full transparency. Because at the end of the day, you know, you operate, we all operate in a trust business, right? Yep. People do business with you because they trust you. And then you get the opportunity to outperform. Then you get the opportunity to generate alpha. But if you don't get the opportunity to get that meeting, to generate that trust, you don't have anything to work with. And so it, it always is, um, and I'll get to your question in just a second, but it's always kind of perplexing to me how you know you talk about cost. And I think cost is all relative, right? right. And, and the thing that people have to keep in mind is you spend years or decades building your reputation, building trust, building your track record. Yet when it comes to the single most important thing that you're going to use to communicate and track that with your investors, it can be eroded in nanoseconds if a mistake is made. And the reality is investors have options today. And so people are starting to take this really, really seriously. Um, so to get to your kind of your, your 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 original question, which was like, why was it so expensive before? And I guess it's all relative how you think about expense. You know, there's two things that I think we observed um, and we continue to observe. Number one is um, building exceptional software is really hard. And yep. there's very few people who have the ability to do it. And we're really unique. Our company was started in San Francisco, uh, basically, you know, in or near the Silicon Valley. We've got an awesome office in Austin, Texas, just down the street from you guys, um, where there's a huge amount of talent. And for us, it's all about being able to attract the right people. Right. And so when you have the best engineers in the business, not the good engineers, not the great engineers, but the best engineers, any of these really complex problems are relatively easy to solve for that group of people. And so from the beginning, we've had an extraordinarily, extraordinarily high bar for hiring and recruiting talent, um, both on the business side, but also on the technical side. And so that's enabled us to build really great software. And the thing about our business that I always explain to our potential customers or folks in the market is that we build software. So Juniper Square is built. The software exists. If right. Fort is a client, that's great. If Fort is not a client, that's not so cool, but the business doesn't go away. And every time we bring on a new customer, um, we're adding them onto this product that already exists. And our business model is built upon repeatable, recurring revenue, right? And right. so our model is we need to build something that's so exceptional, that works so well for you, that you never want to leave us. And if you don't leave us, that means every year you're going to write us a check yep. and we have some, uh, we have the kind of the visibility that that's coming. And that's a really good thing for our business. And, you know, fun fact, in over four years of serving clients, we have never had a single client leave us and go to another solution. And we are the only provider in the market that can say that. And we've brought customers from almost every other solution onto Juniper Square. So we take a lot of pride in that. And so I think one of the fundamental things that shifted is when you not only have great engineers building great software, software has this effect of being able to lower the cost of transacting. Right. So we're able to service you for less because your alternative up into the point of software was hiring a team of people. And the way that that team of people would do it is they would throw bodies at the problem. People get sick. People go on leave. People quit. People make mistakes. A lot of things happen with people. Um, and in reality, people are very expensive, right? And so you would throw people at the problem and that becomes very, very expensive because your business is growing and scaling at a rate that oftentimes a team of people aren't able to keep up with. Yep. So technology has been a really big enabler there, especially when it comes to reducing the cost of a transaction. The other thing that's happened is that um, 
we took a really gnarly problem, right? Like building software for real estate is really friggin' hard. If it wasn't, trust me, a lot of people would have attempted to do it long before we got this idea, but it's really hard. You have a concept of an investor. The investor has an investment in an entity. That entity often has kind of a wide range of structures associated with it. If it's a fund, it has sub assets. Assets have tenants. Tenants have leases. You know, there's a lot of complexity in what's happening and we have to be able to develop a model that can be able to support all of that. And so that specificity towards real estate is really helpful. Um, And that's why we often have people who are like, hey, we started with Salesforce and it didn't work, or we started with generic Portal X and it didn't work. And the reason it didn't work is not because our software is crappy. Salesforce builds world-class software. It's because it wasn't built for real estate. And what that means is that the cost to the client, to you, of trying to configure it, to tell your vendor what you need, how you need it, that all is energy that you need to expend. And that's costly because A you value your time, but it's also costly because you don't, maybe you may not, you may know what you want. You may have the symptom, but you don't necessarily know what the problem is. So our job is to figure out what the problem is and build software that supports that. So when you for capital buy Juniper Square, you can take comfort in knowing that, you know, hundreds of other investment managers are using this software and it's built exactly for the way that you and your team are going to use it day in and day out. So those two things combined help to lower the cost of bringing on new customers and lower the cost of servicing investors. And by the way, you get to scale your business and you don't need to worry about how many people you need to put on this investor reporting thing because the software doesn't work any harder if you have 10 investors, 100 investors, or 10,000 investors. Right. It is. And I don't say this because we're on the podcast, but we legitimately, when we do like a, like a, we go through all the software we use, Juniper Square is consistently the one where we can point to how many people and headaches it has solved us from either having to hire or work that we're having to do. And the thing I like about Juniper the most, to to the point that you made, we didn't even know all the points of friction or problems that we had until we were on the software. And we constantly are discovering like, oh my God, could you imagine having to go back to doing this the way we were doing it? Like up front, we didn't see it as this huge problem, but when we realized, and I'll use the, I'll use an easy one that we always like laugh about the K ones. We, we used to have 30 something in entities with 110 investors, which meant we had to distribute out 600 and something K ones every single year. That meant working with the CPA, getting, having him email them to us, downloading them to the server, individually putting them in everybody's portal, sending out 110 individual emails with everybody's K-1s, making sure they match up. That literally took four or five days to make sure it's perfect because when you're sending tax records out, it better be perfect. And legitimately getting on Juniper, again, we didn't really see that as a problem. We just thought that's like what you had to do until we were on Juniper and you literally press a couple buttons, all of those K1s get uploaded into the software. Y'all's AI intelligence platform immediately spots where what, what investor profile they need to be under. And then we just, and it sends an automatic reminder to our investors, letting them know your K1s are um, in your folder and they can be looked at now. It's legitimately taken five or six days down to one or two hours. And the only reason it's one or two hours is because we always like to just double check and double check and make sure everything's good. But that is what the that's the pleasant surprise of what you said building really exceptional software does. It continues to show you 
over time how many problems you're solving that you really didn't know you had. I guess my question, my next question would be, how do you all draw inspiration to continue innovating the product and make it better? Like, how are you figuring out what to build next? And how do you know it's like the most important thing to build next? So can I, would it be appropriate if I asked you a quick question before I, I of course. move on and I answer that one? Of course. So I, I'm, curi- I'm curious to know, because I get this question a lot when we're when we're talking to prospective clients. They say, you know, in, in one form or another, the thing that they want to know, you just gave kind of a great um, kind of quantified reason around the value of software and, you know, whatever the tool is, right? If you're using a tool, right, it's going to provide value to you. Kind of how has that impacted either your current or future kind of hiring plans, right? Because real estate investment managers um, are, are as good as the people that they have around them. People are core to any business. You can't, we don't want to replace people. Uh, we want to help kind of up-level people and help them do a better job. Um, but people are also expensive, right? Yep. And so I know you place a lot of value on the culture of Fort. You've done, you've invested a ton to kind of build that. So how does how does kind of the utilization of software across the board from you impact um, your growth and hiring plans? And how do you think about kind of those trade-offs? So one of the biggest things at the forefront of our company right now um, is we're starting to think of ourselves like a technology company. And the fir- and one of the ways that we do that is by, is by attacking most problems with, instead of thinking, how do we hire people to solve this problem? Is there a solution out in the marketplace? Is there software that can solve this? And then not only that, but what does that mean for our team? Because you have to onboard onto software. People have to get trained on it. The last thing you want is to spend a year getting onto a piece of software to realize it wasn't really what you wanted. And so we have really put a lot of attention into not only thinking about solving problems through software, but then a really big understanding of what the implications are to our company once we've decided on a software and what the upside of it could be, what the downside of it could be. We also really ask ourselves questions like, how many people would we have to hire to do this without X software? So with Juniper, and I did quick math and I talked to Hunt before I came down here, I just said, if we had to get rid of Juniper tomorrow and we had to do everything that Juniper allows us to do and deliver it in the same fashion as elegantly as possible, how many people could we reasonably expect? And so we have... 250 million of assets under management. We have, you know, 30 plus entities, lots of investors um, of all sizes. And again, it really doesn't matter in the investment world whether someone invests $10,000 or a million dollars. They generally require the same amount of reporting, or at least that's how we look at it. So it's not even about the size. We figured we would have to hire three or four more people anywhere from 50 to $80,000 a year in pay. So let's just do an average of 65. That's 270,000. Plus you have benefits, you have HR things that you deal with, you have all of that extra pressure. Um, so we're looking at probably all in an additional 300,000 ish to, to provide the same experience. And I still don't think it would be the same experience to be totally honest because of this we wouldn't be innovating at the same rate y'all are innovating. We would be just maintaining the status quo, and and but we would not be pushing the ball forward. There would not be new products that would be coming out. So what we pay, you know, a, a tenth now of, and we get an experience and a team behind us that we know is working on solving the next problem every day so that we just can do what we do best, which is invest in real estate. 
we pay a tenth, have a much better experience and can focus more on how to make our investor more money than how to report to them better. Um, and for anybody that doesn't think that saving time on administrative duties and thinking through things like that can hog up all the attention of a business, try doing it all on your own. And so that is a <laughs> cultural thing across a lot of different things we're doing, how we find new deals, how we talk with brokers, how we manage our pipelines. And so I'm trying to, we think of things and how does it make us move quicker? We talk a lot about core in our office. So core is cost reduction, overhead management, revenue generation. So it's an acronym that we've built into the culture. Everybody has to be thinking core. And usually in a, in a world like today, software is a huge component of cost reduction, overhead management. Um, and what you see, especially in real estate right now, um, more than any other industry, it's been a very archaic industry run by, quote unquote, more gray haired folks that have not adopted technology at the speed that other industries are. And it's left this massive opportunity in the short term for people to get ahead, no matter the size of your company, by adopting a technology first kind of mindset rather than a how did we, how have we always done it? Add more people first mindset. And that's not just to real estate, but there's a bigger opportunity in real estate because it's been a lagging industry to adopt kind of new ways of doing things. So I think that answered your question. Um, yeah. but it is, no, it's that. the filter by which we, we start attacking all problems is like, can software play a huge part in this? Yes. No, okay. I love I, I I love that. Yeah, I mean, core is so much more comprehensive than you know some of the things that we hear, which is, hey, it's all about deals, it's all about growth, it's all about you know how how much capital can we raise, and and very kind of short term thinking where you know thinking about it in a with an acronym and a framework of core and thinking about how you can create leverage and efficiencies from your business, um, I think is really awesome. And and you know I love that you're thinking about running or or building your company and running it more like a technology company because I can tell you before I came to Juniper Square. I spent, you know, 17 years in the uh, in the real estate industry, and um, you know, one of the things that's that's really different is kind of the amount of efficiency that we that we are able to operate with here in the technology company. And um, I've always kind of thought that, you know, wow, look how look how look at the efficiency that technology companies operate with. Like, what if real estate companies could do the same thing? And so it's awesome to hear that, you know, not only. Um, am I thinking about what if you're actually doing it? And that's, yeah. a, that's a testament to the, the progressive nature of, of Ford. So I appreciate uh, hats off to you. How do you guys think about yeah. like innovation? Like, do you guys get in a room and you throw up a bunch of ideas and pick which one's best? Like, how do you follow the customer? What's y'all's philosophy on building for the customer? <laughs> Yeah, so we have a customer-centric kind of business model, and so kind of what 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 that means is that um, the the customer is really at the core of the evolution of our product. And what we think of ourselves is is you know um, the vast majority of the team or a significant part of the team has a background in real estate. And some people say, oh, that's awesome. Other people say, oh, that's not important at all. But what it what it means is that we have the ability to understand the problems that exist. But more importantly, we're not necessarily coming to the table. Um, with our own preconceived set of ideas and fixes, right? If I had been a, you know, if the team that's building the software had been a practitioner and they had been in the trenches of trying to do this investor reporting, they would likely come with some degree of a bias to say, hey, this is the way I did it. So let me build software that works for that. Instead, what we do is we leverage kind of our community of customers as well as non-customers. And we look at them and we say, why don't you tell us how you're doing things? Why don't you yeah. tell us what's working, what's not working? And again, what we're getting is we're getting the symptom. 
right? Because people don't know what the problem is. You know, last night my back was hurting because I went for a run. Like, it's not that my back hurts because I have a back problem. It's that I went for a run and I didn't stretch and my hamstrings were tight. But it took a long time for me to figure out that tight hamstrings equals a tight back, right? Now I figure that out. I know what to do to fix it. And so that's our job. Our job is to figure out what the problem is with the symptoms that we're given from our clients. And the way that we think about inspiration, the way that we get inspiration, the way that we build our product is based on feedback that we get from our clients. So we have something called a product roadmap meeting. And the product roadmap meeting is where we come together as a leadership team uh, across departments and we say, what are the things that we're hearing from the market? So the sales team has a seat at that table. What are the gaps that we're hearing that people need in order to close new business? Our customer success team, which is our team that's responsible for making our customers successful and servicing them, comes to the table with requests from their customers and says, hey, what are the things that we're hearing from our customers that we need? Um, our engineering team comes and says, hey, what are the internal tools that we need to make our jobs better as an internal stakeholder? And same thing for the product operations team. So we all come to the table and then we have this thing called a roadmap. And it basically maps out kind of what are we working on now, what's on deck, and what are we going to work on in the future. And the, it's really interesting because all of these things are top priorities. There's no one thing that's a higher priority than next. So it really comes down to judgment calls, right? Yep. What is the thing that we think is going to drive kind of the most value? Because the only constraint that we have to executing this roadmap is the number of people we can put on a problem. Right. So it really forces you into this binary way of thinking, which is really productive to organize your thoughts, which is, hey, we're going to do this all, but we're going to move one step at a time. And when we can bulk things together, that's really awesome. And yeah. that's what we try to do as a leadership team. So um, it, it's interesting when I tell people this because people think, oh, we sit in the room and we dream this stuff up on our own. That never happens. Yeah. It's all driven from what we're hearing from our customers because guess what? If it's something that you need, it's probably something that your peers need too. And the right. benefit of operating on a system like Juniper Square or any other kind of SaaS system is that when we develop and release a new feature, which we do almost on a weekly basis, you get a benefit from it, but so does everybody else. So there's no features on our software that are just built for one customer. So what you know is you get this whole engineering team, this whole product team, this whole product operations team who's working on making this thing better. And every time we make it incrementally better, every single customer gets to benefit. So yep. what that means, going back to your earlier question, Chris, is you don't raise institutional capital today, as far as I know. Maybe you're planning on it, maybe you do. Uh, but but let's just say for purposes of this conversation, you don't. Um, but if you want to, you now can go to your investors and say, hey, we're using the exact same system that managers that have 12, 15, 20, 80 billion in equity not assets, yeah. are using to report to their investors. You're delivering that same standard and you're benefiting from all the things that their investors are asking for um, as well as all the things that your peers are asking for. So it's really powerful because it works both ways. Golly. Is that the mission of the company to be the standard for reporting in the real estate industry or how do you all define like the the, the big, hairy, audacious goal? Yeah, look, I mean, we think we think at a super high level, um, you know, real estate is one subset of the problem, right? Expand that to real assets, yep. uh, which could include, you know, oil and gas and infrastructure, ag, timber, expand that even further beyond. So these problems um, uh, exist even beyond real estate. Um, and, and, and kind of more specifically, we think that, you know, if we can help people run their business better, we can reduce the costs uh, for folks like you and, you know, Eat the cost of each incremental investor that needs to come in. And if we can do that, we can begin to make real estate more accessible, right? If you can onboard an investor at a lower cost, you could take an investor potentially at a lower dollar amount. Because as you said, 
those investors get the same level of reporting and they require the same amount of work. So how do we reduce the transaction cost for each incremental investor? And we think that that's really interesting because most retail investors today don't know where to find you. They, they do because of your podcast, but the proverbial you, yep. right? And so if, you, if you're if you the guy on the street or the woman on the street who wants to invest in real estate, how, where do you go to do that? Maybe you know one or two people, but how do you do that in a repeatable way to build up a portfolio? So that's the problem that we're trying to solve for. And you know, we're seeing that play out. I think I was talking to the team the other day. I think we've helped to facilitate in the last 18 months, something like 50,000 subscription agreements, right? That's 50,000 new investors, you know, signing up with managers that are on our platform, executing legal docs, using our automated subscription tools. That's really powerful because think about the economies of scale and efficiencies that that provides. Oh, it's insane. Hunt always, Hunt always says for anybody listening, Hunt is our, uh, leads the Juniper initiative here. He says that you can, um, depending on how fast you read, um, you can, look at our deal, approve our deal, sign our deal and send money for a deal in under 10 minutes, assuming you've already understood what the deal is like the frictional cost of how that all moves through our system now is a matter of minutes. And it does not require any human interaction between that unless the investor wants it, they can consistently keep clicking buttons that takes them to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And our whole our whole kind of mission is like, how quickly can people sign up and at what point do they have, where can we get them everything they need to know, be as transparent as possible and let the software do the work. And it is, I mean, it, it's incredible. That used to what it take two to three to four hours per person uh, with a lot of human interaction in between to get someone signed up. I mean, you really think about sending these subscription agreements and PPMs that are 60 to 70 pages long. They have 15 signature blocks in them. You're sending them to 20 investors. You're tracking who has them. Have you gotten them all in yet? Hey, have, can you sign that? Can you send it back? Hey, do you want an original copy or is a PDF version? Okay, we'll take either. Okay, well, we like to mail ours in. We want all originals. Okay, can you send us back a copy when it's done? And oh, by the way, once all that's done, six months later, and they're like, hey, can you send us a copy of our our, our subscription agreement? just those little things nobody wants to think about whereas now it's all tracked online as soon as you sign up it's in your account every document we have investors that are in 15 different deals they can go into their portal online go to their profile and everything they could want from every document they've signed to every report we've sent to every distribution we've sent every point of contact with them throughout the life of the investment is documented in one place. And when you like really peel all that back and say, what would it take to provide that level of experience to somebody at scale with 110 people? It's, I don't even want to think about it. It's nauseating. Well, it's awesome. It's awesome to hear that it's working so well for you. And I think one of the other things that's important for folks listening, especially if they're either in the real estate game or thinking about getting into it is, you know, I, I don't know if you've you've tried to quantify this, but there's always a degree of slippage, right? Anytime you introduce friction in a process, you know, you get somebody an opportunity to invest, you know, they get to review it. And then if it takes you weeks to send them the documentation and weeks to get it back to them, you know, they can change their mind, right? Yep. And so there's always this kind of concept that I that that you know I didn't even create. Um, I heard about it from from some of our clients, which is this idea of commit to close, right? You said 12 minutes. What's the time from when they commit to the time when the deal's designed. And that's really good for the investor, not because you're taking away their opportunity to change their mind, but because you're reducing the friction. People are busy. If they've read the documents, they understand the risks, they understand the opportunity and they're ready to go. Why would you make it hard? 
Right. Why would you make it hard? It doesn't make any sense. Just make it easy. That's the that's the onerous part of the process. And then go do your job, which is to bet on great real estate and outperform and return money to your investors as a as a fiduciary, right? Yep. And that's what's going to keep them coming back. So switching a little bit off of Juniper itself and then more just talking about life in a company that's gone from zero to a hundred people in under five years, can you just speak a little bit to um how things change in a hyper growth startup from being a part of Juniper? Like what's it like to be part of something that goes from zero to a hundred people? Um, maybe a more direct question is like, how have you noticed communication changes and culture changes as you kind of hyper grow? Yeah. So, I mean, the short answer is it's been incredible. Um, it's been incredible to be a part of it and, and, and to watch and, and to build. Um, and, and the thing that's most rewarding um, and exciting about it is the quality of people that we've been able to, to attract to the company. And, and I don't just say that because we're on a podcast, um, but, but people always ask me, candidates always ask me, like, what's the thing that you like most about Juniper Square? And, and you know, for sure, it's the people. I've never worked with a group of people who are smarter, who are more motivated, uh, who are more intelligent, who are more committed to what we're doing. And so for me, kind of that gives me inspiration um, every day as, as an individual um, on the team. You know, as as part of the leadership um, and and kind of one of the officers of the business, you know, there there's a lot of responsibility that falls on our shoulders, as as you said, Chris, and and um, you know, one of the things that we've been very deliberate about is you know um, the people, right? So yeah. having a very high bar for hiring um, and recruiting, and we're very fortunate that there's a lot of demand um, to be a part of the team. So so we're very fortunate in that regard. But it's also about kind of building and maintaining a culture. And you know, I know that you've spent a lot of time. Um, not only um, talking about this, but actually doing it. And, and so you'll probably appreciate that, you know, culture is not something that you put on the wall. Culture is not something that you talk about in your weekly, you know, executive team or all hands meetings. Culture is something that you have to live and breathe and embody every day and constantly remind yourself. Um, so one of our kind of core tenants is to think like an owner. And in the back of my mind or the forefront of my mind, I have that grilled. And so every time I come to a decision or a fork in the road, whether it's on who to hire, whether it's on what to do with a client, what to do with a prospect, how to handle a situation at the company, I always come back to like, what would I do? Like, I am an owner of this business. If I'm taking off my day-to-day hat, whatever my you know specific responsibility is, and I'm thinking like an owner, you know, what is the right thing to do? And so um, all of us at the company really focus on that. And we've had to make some changes. Yeah. So for example, very practical changes, you know, the entire company used to get together once a week in a conference room yeah. and we would talk about a whole litany of things um, that were relevant to the business. Well, you know, that worked until we were about 30 people. And then we moved to a weekly meeting where we continued to talk about a litany of things and everybody was engaged and it was great. And that worked till we were about 70 people. Now that we're, you know, 70 plus, we're actually over 100, as you mentioned, you know, we can no longer bring 100 people together. That's 100 hours of, yep. of cumulative time that we're spending. Think about the the value of that time if each one of those people is you know free to do whatever it is that they're that they're doing at the business um and so we have to be as a leadership team extraordinarily mindful about the intentionality of everything that we do so if we're going to call a meeting what is the purpose of the meeting what are the objectives and if you don't need to be there you shouldn't be there right? right um and so so we're just very focused on being mindful of like how we're thinking about and respecting each other's time so a few of the things that are that are just kind of 
paramount to our culture. Um, so number one, we've had to evolve our, our meeting culture where we're being much more mindful about how we curate the agenda, how we think about it. It's almost like a presentation when we come up and talk to the company because it's going to a hundred people that has a lot of value. We need to be very mindful of that. Um, you know, we have an open policy. So we make every meeting is open to anybody at the company who wants to join it as a courtesy. We just ask, you know, you let them know, but you can, there's dial in information. If you want to dial in, there's a meeting room information if you want to come and join. Um, so all of that is open, uh, for people to participate in. Um, most leadership teams have their own meetings, so they get together as pods. And then we meet cross-functionally as an executive team where we come together and we share and we swap notes. So these are all things that have kind of manifested themselves um, as the business has grown. Um, and we've been very intentional about kind of how we orchestrate these types of activities, whether it's the teams getting together uh, for social events or coming together for work events or for meetings um, to make sure that we're we're kind of encouraging the type of connectivity that we want to, to have the culture that's important to us. So um, it's, it's super exciting, right? And we move, um, I, I don't, I think Hunt was in um, our San Francisco office not too long ago, but we're actually moving um, across the street on Friday to a much bigger space. So, <laughs> so you have struck me always as um, just an incredible salesperson uh, and really have over the last three years, I, I have consistently told my team and, and I've talked to you about um, just how much it stands out. And so I, I just wanted to kind of lead in with um, how did you get your career in sales and how has it been something that comes so natural to you? Yeah, well, first of all, I appreciate the compliment. And and I think, you know, there's a lot that um, I and, and our team can can learn from from folks like you and your team. And, and we enjoy the partnership very much. Um, in terms of how I got into sales, it was actually um, accidental and, uh, and and probably um, uh, more delayed than it needed to be. Um, I, I grew up in a real estate family, so I was always close and interested in real estate. Uh, and I never really knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. I used to tell people I wanted to be a developer. And it wasn't until I met with um, a very prominent uh, developer. Uh, actually, it was Jim Bowie, uh, who at the time was running Heinz's West Coast in Asia business. And I got the opportunity to sit down with him. And Jim said to me, he's like, Brandon, look, you want to be a developer, but do you know what a developer does? You know, you're, you're, I'm going to hire you based on your set of experiences and skills in this role. And what that means is you're going to be an analyst. I'm going to put you behind a computer and you're going to stare at the hole in the ground across the street for the next six years. <laughs> and then maybe when that thing gets built, you know, you'll be off to the races. And I said, well, that doesn't sound like fun. Yep. Um, and what the point that Jim was making to me is um, he was making a point that like, hey, you've got a great set of skills around you know, building and managing relationships. And in fact, that is kind of how my career started. I did start and cut my teeth as a developer. Uh, doing land acquisition. And I started trying to raise capital and I realized, well, you know, damn, there's a lot of money out there, but I sure as hell don't know how to get it. Um, why don't I get closer to the money? So I joined a firm doing buy-side investment research, servicing hedge funds and mutual funds and investment banks and special situations team, and really kind of acted as the conduit to help them get the information that they needed to make better decisions. So I started to kind of develop this mental model of what investing in real estate meant from a different perspective. And then ultimately, um, it was another mentor, actually another Texan, uh, Steve LeBlanc, who who at the time was running uh, the Texas Teachers Employee Retirement Fund in their in their real estate strategy. And, and Steve said to me on a bus ride, I remember it, we were at a ULI conference in San Diego. He said to me something that I say to a lot of candidates in my team. He said, Brennan, what's your personal genius? And I said, Steve, I have no idea. I'm not a genius. And he said, no, no, no. What are you better than anybody else at? And I said, I have no idea. Like, how, how do I even know that? He's like, well, do me a favor. Go home and every day, 
in the morning, write the three things that give you energy. And at the end of the day, write the three things that take your energy. And I did that. And what I learned from that exercise is the thing that I'm really good at is building and managing professional relationships. It doesn't have anything to do with real estate. So that allowed me to kind of like decouple this concept of wanting to be a real estate developer, a real estate investor, and said, hey, where can I go and use the relationships that I built over the last 18 years and leverage them? Where can I add value to them? And where can they add value to me? And it was right around that time that this opportunity in software came up and it was kind of a perfect fit because software is not real estate. So it took me out of my box, different sales process. Um, although my clients are all the people I know, real estate investment managers um, who I've been building relationships with focused on the thing that I care a lot about, which is capital markets. So long answer to your question, but um, a slightly less traditional career path. You you mentioned it's a different sales process. I think that'd be something interesting to chat about. What is what is different about selling technology than selling uh, you know traditional real estate or real estate services? Yeah, I mean at its core, what we do is all about repeatability, right? So the way our business model works is we build software. We sink a ton of money, a ton of expense into building uh, into building this thing. In our case, it's Juniper Square, this software. Right. And then what we have to do is we have to go out and sell it and. One of the little secrets of why you know venture-backed technology companies um, have these really high valuations is because it doesn't actually cost us a lot to bring on every new customer. There's a cost to service customers. There's a cost to onboard customers. So there is a substantial cost, but it's not like every time we have to bring on a customer, we have to spin up a new ju- version of Juniper Square. They're getting plugged into the same thing. So there's this there's this inherent scale that exists. And so what that means from a sales process is what we're trying to optimize for is repeatability. So it's like, how do we go out and how do we build the machine that allows us to close as many ports as possible, but not only just close them, onboard them, make them successful, because there's also a network effect. The more we do that, the more investors we have referring us to managers, the more managers we have talking to their peers. And it's this kind of like, it's this flywheel that just gets spinning faster and faster. So unlike real estate, where you go deep into a deal or deep into a portfolio or deep into a capital raise, and you put all your eggs in that basket to do it once. And then as soon as that's done, sure, you could take some of that and use it for your next deal. But you really have to start over on your next deal. And we have the benefit of not having to start over every time. So there's a lot of efficiency. And and, and, that efficiency is driven by this whole kind of unique suite of tools that most people don't know are out there, right? We use tools to manage our email communication. We use different tools to track our pipeline and funnel. We use different tools to train our reps on how to have better phone calls. We look at research based on how other companies are doing this. And we're really just trying to learn from the data more than anything. And I just think from the folks that I've talked to in, in the real estate industry, you know, a lot of deals are still done based on relationships, a handshake and having kind of knowledge that's different than your peers. And, and that's amazing. But I think times are changing a little bit. Yep. No, for sure. Um, when you talked about the tools that y'all have internally to manage your sales process, do most SaaS businesses, and maybe it's not a broad category, I'm painting a, a too general of a brush, but uh, or I'm painting a brush that is too general, sorry. Um, are most SaaS businesses building their own internal tools to manage that? Or do they use other um other people's software to manage internally, or is that dependent on how how sizable you are? 
Yeah. So, so similar to Juniper Square, we don't, we don't find a lot of people going out trying to build their own investor reporting, capital raising, investor relations tool. It's just at the end of the day, um, the, the, all, all kind of different verticals are moving towards specialization. And as a SaaS company, you know, we've got exceptional engineers, exceptional designers, exceptional product managers. Sure. We could in theory build exceptional software to help Juniper Square sales team sell better, but that's not the best use of our time. Right. And so there's these point solutions that exist and, you you know, I can't like you, I can't speak for all vertical SaaS companies, but there's some common threads. So you've got, you know, if you look at, you know, we think about it as point solutions in a tech stack. And one of the key things is that all these different tools need to integrate and talk to one another. So at the top of the funnel, meaning like where we're doing prospecting and we're handling the leads that are coming in, we've got a tool that helps us kind of triage those. Um, when we're calling out to people, we have a tool that helps us track the number of phone calls that our reps are making, what they're saying, who they're talking to, when they're talking to them. We've got another database that all that feeds into. Um, we've got other databases that analyze our reps' calls. And so these are kind of like common tools that are used across the tech stack okay. um, of most kind of vertical SaaS companies. And they're typically not built internally. Um, and it's just it's it's it goes back to what I mentioned before. It's like, what is the best use of our team's time? Yep. And the best use of our team's time is to optimize for tools that are specialized for very specific uses. Yep. So this is something that has been a common thread that I've talked to uh, ever, so many um, businesses about and, and they all uh, kind of have the same answer. But you mentioned a tool that tracks calls and tracks emails and tracks all the notes. Um, from those calls and those emails and, and those exchanges. And the common thread amongst all of them is they're only as good as the people that are willing to put the information into the system, right? And one of the things that kind of comes up over and over is I always ask, well, like, how do you hold your people accountable to using that uh, that tool well? Because as a salesperson, it's great. It, 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 at its best, it's showing the output and the productivity of the sales team. At its worst, it's just nothing. It's a software that sits there, like most softwares that that you know are used by humans and don't and don't get used. So my question is, how do you hold as the sales leader people accountable to using that software as kind of their guiding light for keeping their productivity all in one place? Yeah. It's a great question. It's something that you know we all struggle with. Um, there's a trade-off between functionality and usability um, that exists in, in kind of every scenario. And the way that I think about it is if I'm going to ask somebody to put something into a system, right. they need to be able to get something out of that system that benefits not just me, but benefits them. Right. How does it make them better, richer, smarter, faster? And if we're not able to do that, then it's not a great system because they're never going to use it. Yep. And this is one of the core reasons why we've had so much success with firms who have moved over from really exceptional tools like salesforce.com, right? Right. Um, because they're while they're infinitely configurable, they're not particularly user-friendly, especially if you're a capital raiser at a real estate company who's on the move, who needs a lightweight system that's easy to use where you can get the information entered in and into a click or two. Yep. Um, and we know that because we, we we use Salesforce internally, right? I mean, for right. the first several years of our business, we grew up on our own CRM. But to my point that I made earlier, it's not specialized. Our CRM is not specialized for B2B vertical SaaS sales teams, which is what we are. Right. So we needed to go the specialization route. And I can tell you, we've seen a massive decline 
in the quality and fidelity of data because of usability issues with Salesforce. Right. And so it's something that we're actively trying to solve. And, you know, there, there's a few levers as a, as a leader that, that we have. I mean, one is we can make things mandatory and we can gate compensation behind it and all of that. Yep. But that's kind of like putting lipstick on the pig, if you will. That's not yep. fixing the problem. And so we're much more focused on, you know, looking at the architecture of how have we implemented, implemented System X and what can we do to make the user of the system's experience um, uh, easier with less friction, right? So how many clicks do they need to to make to enter information? And, you know, candidly, I was talking to a, a prospective client at a, at a very large, very large investment manager who, who uses not Juniper Square today. And, you know, one of the reasons that they're considering us is because, you know, this person literally needs to go to three systems. And he showed me while I sat with him, he has to go to 11 or 12 different screens in order to enter notes that, he, that the firm requires from one investor meeting. Yep. Obviously, that does not scale. Yeah. And it's impossible to hold people accountable because nobody has time, even when you're having, you know, a one on one with the people in charge of putting that information into the 12 screens the time to go through the 12 screens to make sure they did it. So it creates an accountability issue. Do y'all use, like if you have a sales meeting, do you use um, that software as like a guide within the meeting? So you go through people's, uh, the week and the productivity that they've had as a salesperson. Um, do you use that software as kind of the head of the meeting or how do you run your meetings to kind of make sure, you know, people are staying productive? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm very fortunate and, and you know, we have hired, we have an extraordinarily high bar for for hiring um, great talent and we hire responsible people who who are committed to kind of, you know, doing the right thing, but also interested in making money because that's the business that we're in as, as salespeople. And um, so I'm very fortunate in that we haven't had kind of a lot of accountability issues, if yeah. you will. Um, the, the way that I, the, the way that I run my meetings is, is, you know, I have a mindset that I work for my team. They yep. don't work for me. I work for them. And and we're all aligned to, I make sure number one, we're creating kind of incentive and compensation packages, which drive that type of alignment. And then number two is, you know, my job is how can I unblock or help or mobilize resources to move a deal through? So I have a few different kinds of meetings. I've got one-on-one -on -one meetings, which are mostly what I call pipeline review meetings, where we'll pick a few deals that we'll talk about in detail. And sometimes the things that reps ask me is like, hey, Brandon, I'm, I'm talking to XYZ firm. I see you're connected to somebody there. Do you mind lobbying in a note? Right now we're single threaded. We're talking to one person. I'd really like another advocate. Can you help? So you know, one set is like where I can leverage my personal relationships. Another kind of thread of commentary that we talk about in our pipeline review meetings is around, you know, what are the what are the pain points that this firm is trying to solve for? And, and the rep and I really kind of brainstorm, like, how do we expand that? Because you've got users of the system and then you've got the executives who are kind of the beneficiaries. And, and the way that they think about the universe is really different. If you're the user of the system, the thing that you care about is like, does it do what I need to do to replicate the workflows that I need to go through? So you're really validating things. And so there's one way of demonstrating that to the person who just needs to make sure this will work for me and my business. And then when we're talking to executives, there's a whole different set of things. Like Chris, the question I would ask to you is like, what are your priorities over the next six to 12 months? What are your top three priorities over the next six to 12 months? And you're not going to say buying Juniper Square. You're going to tell me something else that's a little bit kind of more esoteric. And I need to figure out, well, is there an opportunity for me to align the product that I have with one of your business priorities? And that's something that, you know, the more kind of eyes you can get on that, the easier it is for reps to get their head around not missing out on an opportunity that might be sitting in front of them. 
but that might not be obvious. So I do the one-on-one meetings and then we do a team meeting and the team meeting is an opportunity to share kind of, you know, business updates. Um, but it's also, um, but it's also an opportunity, um, to, to talk about wins and to talk about losses. Cause I'm a big believer, you know, we're very fortunate in that, you know, we're, we're doing, you know, 30 to 40 new deals every month right now. You know, wow. things are humming touch wood. I feel very fortunate, but we're not winning them all. And when we're not winning, I always like to know why. And it's an opportunity to share because, you know, one person's story from the trenches can be really helpful to others. So, you know, that's just the general philosophy, but, you know, I always have to remind myself, no matter how frustrated I get, no matter how busy the day is, no matter how many things I have going on, I hire people and my job is to hire the best people, give them the tools that they need to be successful, and I work for them. And if I'm not doing that, then not only am I failing the 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 reps that I have on my team, but I'm also failing the business that that I'm I'm a part of. Did somebody teach you sale like um even hearing you talk about um just being able to align your product to the three things that an executive might say is a huge uh, goal of theirs in the next 12 months. Did Is there somebody along the way or like a book or a class or something that taught you great salesmanship like that? Or is that just kind of picked up knowledge over time that you've just learned? I mean, hearing that one quote it just sounded like super... Uh, like knowledgeable and super um, specific. It just, it's very smart. And I'm just curious where you learned this along the way. So I'll give you two answers to the question. So number one, for the majority of my career, my goal was to be in the room. I was always the youngest. I was always the least qualified and probably always the dumbest person in the room. But yep. my goal, my purpose in life was to be around people smarter than me. Yep. And one of the only ways to do that is to shut up and listen. Yep. And that's the number one thing that salespeople struggle with, including myself. We all are so excited about what we're selling. We are all so passionate. We all have so much to talk about. But the best salesperson is the one who listens because that's where, you know, that's the arbitrage. It's it's that simple. So we just need to listen more. So I, I kind of learned that by 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 accident and 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 it was a necessity, if you will. I wouldn't have, I couldn't have shown up in the board meetings that I was in, and and had an opinion when I was, you know, uh, uh, 22 years old in room with 55 year old people who had way more experience than me. I had to just be there and listen. So that's number one. Number two, yeah, absolutely. The good news is this isn't rocket science, and there's tons of people who who have a lot to share on this topic. And, and we um, at Juniper Square are big believers in sales coaching. So we bring in functional experts who know nothing about real estate yep. um, to, to train us. And right now, um, and I actually just put out a, a published an article on LinkedIn this morning um, that you can look at uh, uh, for, for your listeners. It, um, Brandon Sedloff, I think it's B. Sedloff is my LinkedIn handle. And um, and, I, and I, I linked to a few of the people that I follow on LinkedIn and that I respect. Um, we use a sales coach out of San Francisco. His name is Skip Miller. Um, he's the author of a few books, Selling Above and the Below the Line, Proactive Selling, Selling, Proactive Sales Management. We really like Skip. He was referred to me by an advisor. Great functional skills for our prospecting and business development. We use um, a legend in the space um, named John Barrows, who's out of who's out of Boston, Massachusetts. And John is just a legend at kind of helping our team um, develop better kind of outbound and prospecting skills. And then I read a ton, a ton of blog posts. Uh, I read, I listen to a ton of podcasts. Um, one of my favorite books that I've read on negotiating is a book called by a gentleman uh, by the name of Chris Voss, who is the former head of FBI hostage negotiation, or he was a former 
a head of hostage negotiation for the FBI, uh, and he wrote a book called Never Split the Difference. Mm. Why, why can you never split the difference? If you've got a person, you don't say, give me, you know, give me 50% of the body, you take 50% of the body. It doesn't work that way. Right. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Everything I learn is from somebody else. Um, I don't claim to have any particular expertise or uh, I'm not a sage in this spot, uh, in this space, but I, I love to learn from others and you know, would love to know kind of what your listeners and what you're reading as well, because um, it's super helpful. And I love your podcast because I can learn something from all the all the other guests that you've had on. Yeah, no, I mean, you, uh, I, can't, I mean, even the other day, you you have built a way of of being in the room and that, that, verm, that room is a virtual room in a lot of instances where you're not... Uh, I always feel like you're close by and not because you're selling, but because you're also very interested in the stuff that we have going on at Fort. I mean, to be candid, you you very often know more about what's going on at Fort all the way from San Francisco than people that that are right down the street from us that we do business with. Um, and it is it's something that I've just found over time when you invest as much in your customers and more than just the sale, but everything else that you do. Um, it just, it creates, um, kind of that relationship that that's really hard to break. And that's, I think when I say that you're the best at it is it's, it's a genuine care for the people that you're working with. And it ultimately leads to sales. It's like people love to work with people they trust and know, um, they don't like to be sold. And so, um, it's just something I've always noticed. And I like the, the quote of just being in the room, that room could be a virtual room or, but figuratively speaking, it's a good thing to think about. If I was a, yeah. if, if I was if I was starting at Juniper Square, um, and and didn't have a ton of sales experience, um, I was new to the team. What would the the first couple weeks or the first month look like in order to start becoming a better salesperson? Yeah, so we run all of our new hires through through a four week training program. You know, number one, they need to learn the company and the culture because we talked a lot about how important people are. You know, our mm -hmm. company is only as good as our people, so that's a big part of it. Um, the second thing that they need to learn is our product because at the end of the day, we need to be experts in the product that we sell so that we know what it does. We don't necessarily need to show our prospects all the different features and functions and speeds and feeds that come out of Juniper Square, but we need to be able to align what we do to the things that you care about and your your colleagues at Fort care about. And then thirdly, we teach them how to sell. Um, and a lot of that is focused on studying the persona. So we have, we have, we call them personas. Who are we selling to? We have a, a deck that we use where we've got the CFO persona. We've got the account persona. We've got the executive assistant persona. We have the CEO persona. We have it broken down by operating company. We have it broken down by, by, um, by groups that raise capital deal by deal from high net worth. We have it broken down by institutional fund managers. Each person has a different persona. And we can't be good at our job if we don't know what makes our customers tick. So yeah. that's a major, major focus of what we do. Um, because at the end of the day, like you said, you know, your customer has to trust you. You have to trust your customer. And we have to know one another. Yep. And if we can do that, then we're going to have a productive relationship. And maybe my final question, just to piggyback on that, how do you characterize the personas and draft them yourself? And is it like mock talking or is it some type of software or program that's used? What, how, do you, how do you use the persona? So, so we do it um, in a, you know, typically it's, it, it, 
typically it's in a live session um, and we use it, you know, where the team, you know, we put it on the board. I have the team look at it and then I, and then I ask them questions, you know, yeah. what, do you, what do you think this person cares about? What don't they care about? If you're talking to a CFO of a mid market, you know, multifamily um, shop, what objection might they have to, to what you're telling them? Right. What, what in addition to Juniper square might be on their mind. And we just do a lot of role plays and, and we have a lot of collective wisdom now because we work with, you know, nearly 500 investment managers. So we can learn from what we've seen from our current clients, but we can also learn from what we've seen in the sales process. And so um, we use that to make us better. But, you know, every day we're finding new personas that we've never encountered before. Yeah. And that can be tricky. We need to learn. We need to codify that information and share it. And so we do have, you know, basically our own internal version of what we call an LMS, which is a learning management system that really helps us kind of stay organized in terms of the process of training and onboarding. Because going back to what's important to my business, one of the key metrics that the whole business is built off of is how long does it take us to onboard new reps how how much time do i need to spend uh before that rep is going to close their first deal and then kind of hit their stride closing a few deals a month every month so we have a lot invested in making sure that our reps are successful i love it and then my final question and we had talked about this last time was your favorite interview question and you had given me some insight about the guy that sits on the plane so i wanted to (laughs) get this on the record for the podcast because i thought it was awesome yeah, it's a it's a funny one, and I I can't claim ownership. I actually learned it from a uh, from a colleague. I think it was Nick Barnard. Um, I'll forward this podcast to him uh, at GLG at the time. But the the, the question is, um, if if you know you ask a candidate, if you're on an airplane and you get the middle seat, um, your goal, you have no option, but you either need to find a way to get to the aisle or to the middle. It's uh, the aisle or the window. It's not acceptable for you to sit in the middle seat for this flight. What are you going to say to the person on either side of you? to to help um, kind of affect that change, right? What are you going to say to convince them that it's a good fit? And um, the reason I love the question is because number one, you can't prepare for it. Yep. Uh, number two, unless you've listened to this podcast, <laughs> um, no, no, number two, um, there is no right or wrong answer. Absolutely no right or wrong answer. It's all about understanding the logic of how somebody approaches the situation gives a lot of insight into the type of person they are. Um, And so those types of scenario based questions are really interesting to me because, you know, tell me about the numbers you hit. Tell me about your biggest win. Those are all things that you're ready for. Yeah, I'm not looking for a gotcha question. I just want to know who's the real person that we're hiring. Right. Because at the end of the day, we're all people and we got to figure that out when there's a lot of noise out there. I love it. All right, buddy. Thank you again for uh, thank you for doing that. That that means a lot. Um, And as always, if there's anything we can do for you, just continue to stay in touch. Awesome. I appreciate it. Okay, buddy. Thanks, Chris. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. You can also email us at thefortpodcast at gmail.com with your thoughts and comments. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode.